Good morning, church. My name is Maddie Manning. Would you guys all stand with me as we read our passage today? This comes from Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 16 through 38. So buckle up. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way they did not depart from them, them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell and you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of their lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Thanks. You may be seated. Thank you, Maddie. You may be seated. Lord, thank you for this uh, amazing passage, this prayer that was um, uttered in the midst of perhaps thousands of people, and it's so rich in truth and history and theology, and so, Lord, I pray that as we, as we glean this morning, that there would be truth that would be applied to us, and that would... Uh, change us, at least in, in certain measure, into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we join Nehemiah and God's people on a day when they had just gone through a, a three-hour Bible study, and then they entered into another three hours of repentance and confession, and they've now launched into a corporate prayer. And so what Maddie just read to us is a portion of that corporate prayer, and it's so full of truth and, uh, and, and so on that I, literally I could spend months on this prayer. I mean, as I'm studying this week, I'm going, my goodness, it is so just rich and deep and powerful. And so, but I'm going to try and keep the pace moving this morning, so it might feel like you're getting a fire hose into your you know, cup or whatever, but that's, that's the way we're gonna roll this morning. So I'm gonna give you just a number of truth statements uh, about God from this prayer. So this prayer is so God-centered. It is just God-centered. So let, let's see how many we can get through. Number one, our God is jealous. Our God is jealous. That's verse 16. They and our fathers, they acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, did not obey the, your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful. Uh, of the wonders. They forgot the, the amazing stuff God did, but they stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader to lead uh, uh, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast. You didn't forsake them even when they made a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed uh, great blasphemies. In uh, you and your great mercies did not forsake them. So the story, uh, perhaps many of you recall it. Moses had been up on Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 32. Up on Mount Sinai, meeting with God for 40 days now. 40 days he is with the Lord God Almighty on the top of Mount Sinai. And uh, the Lord essentially said at that point on day 40, Hey, Moses, you need to go down. We've got a situation uh, going on down below. And, uh, and so Moses had just received the Ten Commandments etched by God's finger on tablets of stone, front and back. And so he's got the, the commandments, one of which, uh, on those tablets, God wrote, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I'm jealous. So what does Moses discover when he gets to the bottom of Mount Sinai? He discovers people drunk, naked, dancing around, a golden calf, a carved image, a molten-shaped object fashioned after a beast of earth. And so the people, they, they demanded from Aaron, because Moses had been gone for so long, they didn't know if he was coming back, they demanded from Aaron something visible, something tangible to represent God that they could direct their worship to, something that would give them, you know, inspiration. The cow, uh, we believe, was chosen because the cow was one of the top gods in the hierarchy of Egyptian gods, known as Apis. And... So this was fresh in their hearts and minds. They're just uh, really a number of days having left Egypt, and so they went with a cow, <laughs> a whole, an unholy cow, I guess. So all the cows of the world were feeling pretty good right now. We got us a god over people. That's pretty awesome. So in actuality, it was a blasphemous creation by God's people. Humans are the only creatures who live on earth that were originally created with the faculties capable of being in a love relationship with God. We're the only ones. And so true, all creation is created to the praise of its creator, but man, our praise, is the, it's the homage of an intelligent and an affectionate heart and a conscious choice or preference. We choose to love God. We choose to worship him. That elevates us above the animals and the beasts and so on. So, so humans by nature are religious. Even atheists are religious. You can't, you can't stop being religious. It's in the wiring of the human being. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them to worship. He created them for relationship with him. When they disobeyed and they were separated from God by their sin, God did not remove their worship wiring. He didn't pull it out. They still need to live for something of transcendent value, something that they wake up in the morning for. They still need to live for something of highest value in their life. And so that's still true of every human being. Everybody lives for something. Everybody bends their life around something, spends their money on it, obsesses over it. This is what I live for. That's a person's God, in effect. So people will worship just about anything, really. And usually it's a God that, that suits a person's fancy. I mean, that's really the way. It's like, okay, what am I into? Well, that's my God. So people worship the planet. That's a big one right now. That climate change is a big denomination in that particular religion. And so uh, they, they have their prophets who are prophesying uh, the apocalypse, the impending doom of the planet. Fossil fuels have to be abandoned. Uh, it doesn't matter that God's generous deposits of fossil fuels in the earth have lifted billions of people out of 
poverty in the last century or more. I mean, amazing what has happened in the last century. Staggering. It doesn't matter that if we abandon fossil fuels quickly like they're saying we should, that millions of people, especially in the impoverished nations, will die unnecessarily. Doesn't matter. We've got to save the planet, not the people. People worship animals. People worship Elvis. People worship Taylor Swift. They even have a name. They're the Swifties. And they gather for worship in giant stadiums and, and they call her a, a pop star. You know, a star, that's ancient terminology for a deity, for a god, a star. That's all over the ancient landscape and in the Bible. Or we call her a pop idol. <laughs> that's kind of on the nose, isn't it? People worship their sports teams. Speaking of which, <laughs> sorry, sorry, 49ers fans. Um, that was a tough one. Hey, find a route for your team, but here's the rule. If, if, if their loss, which was, it was a tough one. If their loss ruined more than 15 minutes of your life emotionally, there may be an idolatry problem going on so, so God is jealous over us. God is jealous, God himself says. Now that may hit our ears funny because we inevitably think of jealousy as, as what we experience maybe or, or we think of it as a, a boyfriend who's suspicious of his girlfriend and he's acting all paranoid or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But God's jealousy is pure and holy. In fact, the word translated jealousy in the Hebrew, kanah, it's only used of God in the Bible. And it means he will not suffer any rivals. He will not tolerate any rivals. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. That's a statement of his jealousy. In the same way, I am jealous of my wife. My wife is jealous of me. I would not tolerate her flirting with other men. She would not tolerate me flirting with other women. And so her wifely love for me is for me and me alone. My husbandly love for her is for her and her alone. Any, anything outside of that would be wrong and perverse. So too, God, our maker, our redeemer, is jealous over us. He's exacting, he's particular when it comes to our relationship, and rightly so. Therefore, anything that displaces our love for God is an idol. It's idolatry. Idolatry is a problem. It's a problem for Christians. How do we know? At the very end of uh, John's first epistle, 1 John 5, 21, little children, Christians, guard yourselves from idols. Now, I don't think John was necessarily thinking that, you know, they're going to, Christians are going to get, you know, trinkets and statues and start, you know, bowing to them in their homes. I think he was thinking of the, the greater sense of idolatry. For instance... For the Christian, idolatry generally comes, it comes in, in, in the more subtle kind of a way. For instance, uh, Colossians, uh, what is it, 3, 5, mortify, kill, covetousness, 
which is idolatry, Paul says. Covetousness is idolatry. What is covetousness? Covetousness is simply wanting what you don't have. So many of us, when, when we are down, when we are feeling blue, we will, rather than seek the Lord, we will seek Amazon.com, and we will start just working through what's going on out there in the retail world. And we'll buy something. And we buy something, and it makes us feel better, better for a minute. So we have a term for that. It's called retail therapy. So we can go buy some new thing and go, oh, man, I feel good for a minute. But that minute's over pretty quickly. So God calls that idolatry. We're seeking to fill a void in us that can't be filled by something material. We are not to form gods. God is to form us. In Exodus 34, 17, in the God's second giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses, he says, thou shalt not have molten gods. Molten, you shaped it just the way you want it. So don't make God into a shape that suits you because by definition that is idolatry. Rather than being shaped by the Lord and his word, people shape God into an image that they're comfortable with. And so for many people, their God celebrates a woman's right to choose, to choose to kill a baby inside of a mother's womb. Others have a God that affirms and applauds LGBTQ behavior. Other people have a God who, who wouldn't command the killing of anyone. If God is good, he wouldn't do such a thing. He wouldn't punish anyone. So, so God's book, the Bible, has to be edited. It can't be taken at face value because that kind of a God offends me. So the people who do that, they're not worshiping the true God. They're worshiping a molten God, a God that they've shaped into the image that they desire. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. Our God, he is immaterial, he is unchanging, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is everywhere present, this God cannot be reduced to an idol, an icon, or whatever. We worship him in spirit because he is immaterial. And we're to love him with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. The Lord is jealous over us. He's jealous over our love and our worship. He wants all of it. When we give God our first love, we are then in a place where we can love our neighbor properly with the love of God. That's the way it works. Number two, our God sustains. He sustains. That's verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out and their feet did not swell. 
So think about this. In the wilderness, God's people had the Spirit instructing them, manna every morning, water from a rock, clothes that didn't wear out. They lacked nothing, literally nothing. Christian, you will lack nothing. You lack nothing in this life. Now, this can be a hard sell, but man, it is true, capital T, true. You've got the Holy Spirit teaching you. You've got the bread of life nourishing you. You've got the water of life satisfying you. You've got the righteousness of Christ clothing you right now. And so you are on a journey right now in this wilderness to the celestial city. And in this journey, you will have everything you need to make it there. You are going to make it home. That's God's promise to you. You have everything you need to get there. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not, you know, my dad's a little reluctant about letting you guys in, right? Not God's posture at all. Because of your faith and trust in God's Son, man, it's his pleasure to bring you home. There's nothing to fear. The Father delights in bringing us home. Psalm 37, 28, the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Whatever you're going through right now that might be bringing fear into your heart and mind. Oh no, what if this happens? Oh no, what if that? I don't, I don't know what's gonna happen. Listen, you are preserved by God. You're gonna make it. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1, 5, we are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. You're being guarded right now by God. Jesus is fully able to keep you and me from stumbling and to present us faultless and blameless before his throne with exceeding joy, by the way. Like it's gonna be a happy day when we get there. You're gonna make it. Now, the journey, however, is going to be treacherous at times. Storms are gonna come, trials are gonna appear, suffering will be experienced by God's people, but none of those things will sever us from the Lord uh, and from his promises. None of those things will negate his promise. In fact, they will serve us. The hard things in this journey will serve us, and they will actually get us ready for the next phase in glory. So James chapter 1, I'm going to read this out of the message verse, and this, this really, uh, I love this way of putting it. James 1, 2, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try and get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so that you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. So take joy, the ESV, take joy at the trial that comes upon you. It's serving you. It's shaping you. It's readying you. Jesus, who's gone to prepare a place for you, he's now preparing you for the place. That's why we can joy even in the midst of our difficulty and our suffering. So here's an amazing verse. 
Ephesians 1.3, one of my favorite verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So he has blessed us where? In Christ. If you're in Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that reside in the realm of heaven. So every Christian lives in, in two spheres, essentially. We live in the spiritual and in the material, the invisible and the visible, the heavenly and the earthly. And so our riches and our wealth, according to Ephesians, is ultimately in heaven. That's the true wealth that we have. Now, earthly wealth in this sense, really isn't wealth at all. Why? Because it terminates. It'll be gone forever, never to be thought of again. So it's just a temporary uh, way of transacting within this current phase of our journey. That's all it is. Heavenly wealth, on the other hand, is forever. Earthly wealth can be converted into heavenly wealth, interestingly, through what you give. But it's from the heavenly realm that we derive the power, the direction that we need to make it in the earthly realm on this difficult journey. So here's how this works. Ephesians 2, 6, he has raised us up together. He's made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, that's not, that's not a thing that's coming. It's right now. He has made us to sit together in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. We are seated with him now. That's not a, a figure of speech. It's not, it, it's, it's a spiritual reality. And man, if you can get a hold of this, it, it, it will change your life. This spiritual reality that you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God at this moment because you're in him, it's a place of honor, it's a place of rest, it's a place of resources, inexhaustible resources. We tap into these resources through the simple methods that God has given us. Prayer, the word of God, fellowship, communion. That's how we tap in to the heavenly resources. And, and it's like when we pray, we're, we're drawing upon our heavenly bank account to, be, to apply the riches to our moment, the moment that we're in. So the implications of this are, are staggering. So for instance, we're seated with Christ, we have union with him, so therefore we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And God will supply all our need according to his riches in glory by Christ. All, not most, not some, all. Do you realize, Christian, that this means that you have all that you need right now? This second, you have everything you need to make this journey home. You don't, need, you don't need him, you don't need her, you don't need them, you don't need it. You've got Christ. You are complete in Christ. You've got it all. 
There's a famous story about William Randolph Hearst. Uh, he was, you know, super, super ultra wealthy guy, 100 plus years ago. And, but he was, his art collection was world famous. And uh, he had a warehouse for all the art pieces that he had purchased over the years. And um, one day, Mr. Hearst was reading about um, some valuable items that he meant, man, I want to own that. I want to own those pieces for my collection. And, uh, and so he sent his guy, his agent, uh, abroad to find uh, these particular works of art. And after months of searching, the agent came back and said, sir, um, I have searched all over the place and uh, I finally realized that these works of art are already in your warehouse. Hearst was wanting something that he already had. A lot of Christians live that way. They're searching for something they think they don't have. When all the while they have it, you have everything you need. Well, number three, our God blesses, our God blesses. Verse 22, you gave them kings and, or kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. They took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children uh, and so on. They captured, verse 25, fortified cities, a rich land and so on. So they ate, they were filled, they became fat, they delighted themselves in your great goodness. Wow, we're living now. Like life is good We've, we've conquered so many of the enemies and we're getting wealthy and we're eating great food and we're getting fat and we got great wine. It's like life is so good. And God delights to bless his people. He does. But here's, here's the tricky part of that. And especially for those of you who are riding high right now, like your bank account is fat. You got, I mean, you... You are being blessed by God, like huge. Here's the danger. And God actually warned them about it, but it's found in Deuteronomy 8.10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good he has given to you. So that's, that's important. Keep your thankfulness going. Like every time God gives you more, God blesses you here or there, just thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. They praise you, Lord. It's all you, it's all you, it's all yours. You've given it, Lord, we know it's yours. We're stewarding. Verse 11, be careful, be careful in that moment when things are so good that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large, your silver and gold increased and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. There's a danger there. Like before things were going so good for you, there was, a, there was a dependence on God. There was a need for God. But all of a sudden, God is blessing you. And he is. He's blessing you. Your bank account is fat. Your investments are doing wonderful. Your business is prospering. You built a new house. I mean, man, things are going so good. It's a dangerous moment for God's people. That you forget the Lord your God. And you forget how much you need him. And you start to think, yeah, I did good. Look at how good I'm doing. 
Look at what I built. Well, and when that happens, well, that brings us to number four. Our God disciplines. <laughs> he disciplines. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, oh my goodness, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. You heard them from heaven, and according to your mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And this is recounting the book of Judges, where there's this cycle of God blessing, and then the people getting fat and sassy, and then all of a sudden they forget God, and then the enemy comes in and causes them to suffer. They cry out. God delivers them. They get fat and sassy, and it just up and down and up and down. So apparently this is a feature of the human nature, <laughs> this, this getting fat and sassy, this like, okay, God, you blessed me. I'll, I'll take it from here for a while. So in spite of God's generosity, the people stray. When the people stray, their enemies surged and brought suffering to them. Their suffering then caused them to cry out to God, who then delivered them. So God, giving them over to their enemies, was his loving discipline. It was loving discipline. Now here's something that it doesn't get talked about probably enough, but let me just set this last, we'll, we'll end on this, this point this morning, but I, I came across an assignment um, that was given to third graders. A teacher gave them an assignment that fill in the blank of, of common cultural proverbs. So, so the third graders were given this sheet and it had cultural proverbs on it with the last word or couple words left out. For instance, the early bird gets the yeah, and they would fill, fill in whatever they thought, right? So, so here's a few of their answers. Better safe than punch a fifth grader. <laughs> Again, third graders. Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. <laughs> you can't teach an old dog new math. <laughs> a penny saved is not much. Children should be seen and not spanked. <laughs> now that's a third grade answer right there. But I bring that up. Listen, the New Testament corollary, you know, we as parents, we know the importance of disciplining our children, but so too the Father, our Father disciplines us. The New Testament corollary is Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and disciplines every son he receives. So the big idea is that if we are God's child, then God is busy and active, disciplining us, chastening us, so that we will become mature and become more like Jesus. The discipline isn't pleasant necessarily, 
Just like it wasn't pleasant when we were little, probably to get spanked, you know, by our parents. I got one spanking in my life, by the way, which probably explains, explains a lot of my issues in life. I got spanked once by my mom. I was five years old in the kitchen. I remember it. Moose Lake, Minnesota, in our house on 2nd Avenue, 405 2nd Avenue in Douglas in Moose Lake. And I bent over, and my mom, skinny mom, she, she gives me a whack. I laughed. It was such a pathetic spank. I started laughing, and then my mom got so mad, and I just started running because she was saying, come back here, Gregory, you fathead. You know, anyway, too much information, but that's what it was like. That was my one spank. God's discipline for us, parents, we, we aren't perfect in the disciplining of our children, not by a long shot. We do our best. But God's discipline is perfect. It's never out of anger. It's never out of spite. It's never out of frustration. It's always to bring blessing and growth in your life, always. Here's our struggle, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, so this is an interesting picture that's being painted. We're told that encouragement, encouragement will come from looking to Jesus, who's the author, the finisher of our faith. He endured unimaginable hostility. And so fixing our eyes on Jesus is the cure for discouragement in our life. It's the cure for every spiritual malady. But please notice that sinners came against Jesus. He endured the hostility of sinners Sin comes against us. Sinners came against Jesus. Sin comes against us. Jesus dealt with the hostility and the hatred of sinners. We deal with the hostility and the contempt that sin has toward us. Now, I love this because this is one of the passages that helps us to think properly about our identity. Our identity is in Christ. And, and man, this is so important that you think of yourself this way. The issue of identity is fundamental in the Christian life. And it's trickier than it seems sometimes because the enemy that the writer is talking about is within us. It's not external, it's internal. So this is precisely the issues that the, the Hebrews, the Jewish believers were wrestling with. They were being pressured to leave Jesus and to go back into Judaism, into temple worship. But their identity was in Christ. And so unbelief was a sin that was waging war inside of them. It was coming at them. It was trying to get them away from Jesus. But the sin was inside of them. It was part of them, but not part of the new creature them. So, so here's the thing, is, is we're, we're dual in our nature. Galatians 5, 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a war inside of us. If you're a Christian here this morning, there is a war in you. 
You may have wondered why. Why am I drawn to these things that I know are not good, that I know are sinful? Why am I being drawn that way? Because the flesh is in you, opposing the spirit. The spirit who wants to enable you to do what is actually right and good. So, here's the deal. The spirit and the flesh, they're opposed to each other. The result is that we, we struggle doing the thing we know that we should do. This is the, the Romans 7 where Paul says, man, uh, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And I actually do the thing that I hate. Okay, so it's not, it's not I, it's sin in me. So who's going to deliver me from this problem? So the true Christian is a new creature in Christ. The true you, the eternal you, the, the loves Jesus you, loves the word you. That's, that's the real you. But the flesh wars inside to bring confusion to you. So Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us. This is a massive truth umbrella over our lives that Listen, it, it'll help explain why we don't only have victory and prosperity in this life, but why we also have difficulty and suffering in this life. This explains that. The original recipients of the letter to Hebrews, they're, they're going through difficulty because of their belief in Jesus, right? They suffered economically, they suffered socially because of it. At the same time that this was persecution from the enemies of God, it was also discipline from the hand of God. Now stick with me here. Men persecuted them because they followed Jesus. God disciplined them in order to follow Jesus more. And it's the same action that's being used Men persecuting, God disciplining, men desiring the people to fall away, God desiring the people to get deeper. So the writer basically says, don't blow off God dealing with you as no big deal. He chastens every single one that he loves and he is utterly serious about growing you in your maturity, your Christ-likeness. So here's what happens, and we'll close here. We go through life, this challenge happens, that trial comes, another issue arises. If I don't connect all of it with the chastening hand of God, the, the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in my life, then I will just get discouraged when my children are straying, when the thing that I'm trying to get done, I can't get done, I'm not having success here, or these people are coming against me over here, if I don't connect that to the work of God in my life, shaping me, maturing me, then I will just get discouraged. I'll be bummed out. Why are things not happening the way they should? And I'll think, oh, maybe I screwed up somewhere. And, you know, and I'll start to think like God is that, that kind of God. God's not that kind of God. However, if my expectation is that I'm supposed to be holy, and faithful, and loyal to Jesus, and trusting, then all of life's circumstances and experiences will connect 
to and serve my goal, which is to be more like him. Everything. God the Father disciplines us not out of anger, not out of frustration, not out of spite, but out of pure desire for our good and for his glory. How do we know? Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? So God is completely and irrevocably for you. He is for you. He's never going to stop being for you because you're in Christ. And if he already gave Jesus for us, how will he not freely give us everything else that we need? Listen, parents, if you give, say you've got a graduating senior, you're going to give them the, like the ultimate senior give. You give them a car. Like you give them the car. You're not going to withhold the keys. Well, you might. <laughs> you might just want to torture them or something. But... But if you give them the, the expensive thing, the incredible thing, you're not going to hold the little thing that serves the thing that you gave them. Listen, God gave us the big gift. So we're going to get everything else. Throughout history, royal families, They've received, you know, special treatment. You know, there's certain protocols you deal with stuff. But oftentimes, royals, including children, were, they were excluded from receiving punishment. And so the royal children still needed to know that they misbehaved and that they deserved to be punished, even though they wouldn't be punished. So what they would do when a prince or a princess, when they were little, when they disobeyed or did poorly in school, whatever, the punishment would be given to a, a whipping boy. And so this person became the, the stand-in for the royal. And, and so there was no doubt who was really at fault, but it was simply unthinkable for a servant to punish a royal. So... The cross, it, it flips that thinking on its head. Although the servant, the slave, is at fault, it's the royal who receives the punishment. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Glory, took our place when he died upon the cross. And he voluntarily became our whipping boy to endure that so that we wouldn't have to. This is how we know that when God disciplines us, it's not because he's ticked off, it's not because he's just frustrated, you know, like us earthly dads can get. Nope. It's pure goodwill coming into your, the hard thing you're going through right now, Christian, take joy. God's using it, he's growing you. He's taking you to greater places in your walk with him. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much, um, so much truth in this prayer. It's just incredible. And, um, and we feel it, Lord. We're impacted by the, the truth. It, Lord, we get to know you better through just looking into these people's prayer, 
two and a half thousand years ago. And so I pray, Lord, that as, as we come to the table together, Lord, that, that the word of God would be dwelling in us richly and personally, and that, Lord, maybe you've given to many of us a, a personal word, and we're applying it. We're going, okay, I'm connecting some dots here. I know why I'm struggling in this area, or why, okay, Lord. So God, I pray that our, that our impulse would not be to, to get farther away from you, which that can happen, but Lord, that our impulse would be to draw near and to praise you and to say, Lord, work in me, shape me, however you want to, whatever it takes. God, I know you'll never leave me or forsake me. God, I know you're for me, not against me. So, Lord, have your way in my life. Lord, I pray that that would be our heart's posture as we come to the table. Meet us, Lord, and let the, the drama of that moment where the king of all kings, who became flesh and dwelt among us, went to the lowest place on the planet, being crucified naked upon a cross outside of Jerusalem, bearing our sin's punishment so that we might be brought in to the royal family of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're invited, if you're a Christian, to get up and make your way to a communion table if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to invite you to become one. You say, well, how do you do that? Do you take a class? Do you, what do you do? Well, it's, it's pretty simple, simple um, in the Bible. Uh, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believing is a, it's an active verb. It means to put your faith, your trust, your weight upon Jesus and what he's done for you. And uh, it begins with a prayer. So if, you, if you'd like to become a Christian, pray this prayer with me and just say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Wash away my sin. My life is yours. In your name I pray. Amen.